This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. After years of working as a staffer on Capitol Hill, a campaign consultant and a pollster, Charlie Cook founded what was first called the National Political Review in 1984, before renaming it later that year to the Cook Political Report. For the past three decades, his independent, nonpartisan newsletter has analyzed elections, campaigns, and political trends. Charlie was the co-recipient of the American Political Science Association, prestigious Carrie McWilliams Award to honor a major journalistic contribution to our understanding of politics. He joins me today for a closer look. Charlie, normally the party in power loses seats in the midterms, but nothing is normal these days. We seem to have gone back and forth from predicting a total Republican meltdown to... Uh, the assumption that Trump is so popular, he'll avoid that occurrence. How do you see things look in the big picture after the recent round of primaries? Well, I, I don't go along with the second premise, that um, the president's numbers are better than they were last fall and better than they were a couple months ago. But they're still at historically bad levels. I mean, no post-World War II president had job approval ratings as low as the president's are right now and all but two weeks uh, of his entire presidency. So um, it, it's a matter of gradations of, 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 of bad. But this is a huge election. I mean, that uh, every two years we have the entire House up, but how often do you have the House teetering on the edge? And um, you know, every two years you have a third of the Senate up, but how often do you have uh, the House on the edge and the Senate 51-49? And Republicans have huge exposure in terms of uh, governorships and state legislative seats, particularly in terms of open ones. But the pattern is is pretty unmistakable, and um, I see no reason to... Uh, I think in all likelihood Republicans are going to lose the House, um, and for technical reasons, probably not the Senate. But I don't think things are appreciably better for Republicans now um, than they've been at any other point this at any point this cycle, because it's always been been really bad. There was like one week, one week that uh, that President Trump's numbers were better than Jimmy Carter's, but still behind every other uh, post-World War II president at that at those points. So um, I don't think it's a yeah, I don't. I don't think that second argument is 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 very strong. I don't know how you can reconcile that view with what appears to be Trump's invulnerability. Uh, he gets everything he wants. There don't seem to be any effective challengers out there. Uh, I know people would say that just wait, there'll be a a strong Democratic challenger. But if she's not on the scene now. I don't see any likelihood whatsoever of Trump uh, being vulnerable in the next election. Do you? Well, um, 
We, at this point in 1974, Jimmy Carter wasn't a blip on the radar screen. Bill Clinton didn't look formidable. Barack, Barack Obama was unknown outside the state of Illinois and not you know, terribly well-known in Illinois at that point. No, I don't think, uh, I think it'd be, it's entirely normal uh, that, that you don't, we don't know, um, that no one has emerged. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't see that as a problem at all. And in terms of gotten everything you did, I mean, there were sort of four top priorities at the beginning of the administration. There was repealing and replace Obamacare, building a border wall, infrastructure program, and, uh, and, and the tax cuts, and for the first 11 months of last year, they were 0 for 4. Then they got the tax cuts. You've got historically low job approval ratings. And a guy that um, uh, won the presidency almost on a technicality. I mean, it had been 140 years since 1876 when someone lost the popular vote, the, uh, vote as badly as Trump did. 2.1 percentage points, and still won the Electoral College. So I don't know who Democrats are going to nominate. And if, um, you know, if they do an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders type, then they could very well blow a good opportunity. But, um, you know, I, I don't think we could say that's for sure that's where the nomination is headed at all. So um, right now, I, if I had to bet right now three years from Today, I would bet 60, I would say it's 60-40 that he's not president, whether he didn't run for re-election or lost, uh, lost re-election. Well, I'm surprised by that because certainly if you read the headlines, you believe that Donald Trump gets just about everything that he wants to get. What, certain, what has he gotten legislatively that he, other than the tax cuts? Well, other, no major other than the tax cut, that's a pretty big get. The tax cut was a huge get, and he has a terrific economy pushing him forward. That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, let's see. The tax cuts are are not are highly unpopular among independents. They are extremely opposed, obviously, by Democrats. Yes, the economy right now is doing is doing very well on the verge of overheating, some economists say. And I've talked to some pretty smart economists who put the chances of of this thing overheating and going over the edge uh, before 2020 at close to 50-50. That's entirely possible. But right now, I think he's riding a wave. And maybe that's because he has command of the airwaves. Uh, I think that's well, well, an incredible. Why are his job approval ratings at historically low levels? I mean, that's completely inconsistent with saying he's in command. It just feels. I mean, the president has been in worse shape at this point in their presidency. I can't name one in modern history. It doesn't feel that way, Charlie. Uh, what you're saying is that forget the feelings. The facts suggest that Trump is not in as good shape as I'm suggesting he is. But I think that the absence of an effective challenger who really calls him to task uh, makes me believe that. But, but we usually don't. I mean, when, when parties have taken the presidency uh, two and a half years out, the norm is not, I mean, it, it, the norm is not to know. I mean, 
this is not unusual at, at all. And and the, the fact that Democrats probably uh, could use a fresh face, a newer face, um, um, you know, just putting that aside, um, I don't find that a, a problem at all. I mean, as I said, uh, Carter, Clinton, Obama, they were all fairly, they were all unknown people at this point. Charlie, a record number of women have stepped up for U.S. House and Senate races, 521 overall. Almost three-quarters of the women running are Democrats. How do you think they're faring so far? Well, I think they're faring very well, that um, they've they've done uh, sort of beaten the point spread and won a lot of nominations uh, so far. We've got half the, half the primaries are over now. And we're seeing um, women voters turning out in, in, in very, very strong numbers in the primary. And that when you sort of look at the national sort of macro vote, um, college-educated white women are, are trending very, very heavily towards Democrats. And in fact, if you, you know, college-educated suburban white women, which is where a lot of these house races, for example, are, but, you know, take a look at the Virginia governor's race, where uh, the Republican nominee, Ed Gillespie, who was a smart guy and made no major mistakes, ran a good campaign, actually overperformed how Republicans usually perform, winning Republicans usually do in small-town, rural, southern, southwestern Virginia, but just got clobbered in the suburbs of northern Virginia, Richmond, and the uh, uh, Tidewater area. And, and I think a lot of this is driven by women voters, and some of it sort of it's our time, and some of it's me too, and, and some of it is guns, and some of it is a, a backlash against uh, various aspects of President Trump. Um, so for a wide variety of reasons, um, you know, this could be the second year of the woman, uh, just as 1992 was uh, in a, in a, in, on a lot of levels. Now, when I go through the Cook Report list of House races, I see that Democrats have seen a surge in suburban districts, even in red states. Uh, is that what you see? Well, yeah, suburban suburban areas behave like tend to behave like suburban areas, and it, it, in, in what state they're in makes less difference than what kind of people are there. And we're also seeing, you know, we've seen in a lot of the, the larger cities, even in the South, a, a, a fairly significant influx of non-Southerners have moved in, uh, as well as sort of Southerners behaving somewhat less Southern. But, you know, for Democrats, the path to a 218 majority is by and large not through small town or rural America, um, those kinds of districts, because uh, President Trump is uh, is extremely popular. Um, I mean, those areas are trending Republican, and President Trump is extremely popular. It's it's more urban, suburban, uh, and specifically suburban, because Democrats pretty much already have most of the urban districts. So it is suburbia where where this thing is is happening, and and there is to a certain extent a realignment. Uh, former Congressman Tom Davis makes this case. Uh, that what we're seeing is small-town, rural, white males without college are trending 
very, very, very strongly towards the Republican Party, while upscale white voters, upscale white suburban, particularly women, are trending very strongly in favor of Democrats. And the challenge for Republicans is that where they're growing is a shrinking proportion of the electorate, and where Democrats are growing is a growing proportion of the electorate. So, um, you know, these... These are not positive long-term trends for, for Republicans. Democrats have some unique issues coming up, but, but I don't think that the demographics is not one. Are you predicting now a turnover of the House? Yeah, I, yes, I would say put it about 65% chance of the House flipping over. I mean, our, what we're looking at is somewhere between a 20 and 40 seat Democratic gain. Now, if it's a 20 or 20, 21, 22 seat gang, Republicans hold on by their fingernails. But if it's 23 or more, it goes over the, goes over the, uh, the edge. Um, and sort of uh, a lot of models suggest actually bigger numbers than those. But because of uh, the redistricting that took place in 2011 and natural population patterns, they serve as they mitigate to a certain extent the impact of a, of the of uh, of this wave. I mean, the way I I look at this election is, we have what appears to be a Democratic tidal wave up against a Republican seawall, and in the House the wave looks taller than the wall, and in the Senate because of which specific Senate seats are up, and specifically Democratic Senate seats are up, the the seawall looks taller than the wave. So you're predicting the Republicans will retain the Senate? Well, I mean, if I if you had to say today, I would say, but, you know, we've got five months to go. But I'd say right now the odds are much better that Republicans hold the Senate but lose the House. But, you know, um, uh, we're talking about human behavior and, and not quite five months. Now, you usually reliable, you have usually reliable red states. Arizona and Tennessee as toss-ups in the Senate. Does that suggest that something's changing there, or is it the candidates making the difference? I think in Tennessee it's the candidates. I don't see Tennessee changing, um, certainly not changing in any way that benefits Democrats. Uh, but I think that Democrats have an unusually strong candidate with uh, a former two-term governor, uh, Phil Bredesen, um, and, and Republicans have a, uh, a competent candidate in Marsha Blackburn, but um, she does tend to be a polarizing figure and does uh, alienate oftentimes people that ought to be more friendly to a conservative Republican. So uh, I think that Bredesen is going to over, as the Democrats going to overperform and the Republican is going to underperform. And the question is, will both those things be enough to tip the seat over? But more polling, we're seeing more polls showing Bredesen, the Democrat, ahead uh, than than Blackburn, the Republican. Uh, the question is, w will it be enough given the natural sort of tilt uh, towards Republicans in Tennessee? Um, in Arizona, it, it's still a, a reddish or pinkish state. Um, it's becoming more purple, more competitive, but it's not quite there yet. But um, you've got a, a bitterly divided Republican Party out there uh, to the point where Senator Flake um, very well could not have won a, a primary uh, because he had been critical of the president and their big division. You know, there in, in uh, there's uh, um, it, it creates some some real problems for 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 Republicans in Arizona. 
Charlie, what do you think the chances are of Texas going Democratic? In the U.S. Senate race, yes. minimal, absolutely minimal. I mean, Democrats have a, a, a very good candidate in Beto O'Rourke, the congressman, uh, against Ted Cruz. But in, in, in Texas is a state that will go, it, it, it will become a purple state, a competitive state, and that uh, um, Senator Cruz is obviously a, is a very polarizing person, but it's not trending Democratic nearly fast enough. And, you know, it was only four years ago that Democrats fell in love with a uh, a gubernatorial candidate that was highly touted who ended up with, uh, what, 38, 39 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. So Texas is changing, but it's not changing nearly fast enough for the uh, 2018 Senate race. I would be absolutely flabbergasted if uh, if Senator Cruz lost re-election. But, I, you know, it could it could it be within five, six, seven points, sure. The Koch brothers have announced they're going to be supporting a Democratic senator from North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp. What's changed there, and do you think that will save her seat? Well, I think Republic, uh, the, the, the Koch folks are, um, uh, they are, are very conservative and um, very much free trade. And um, it is sort of a man bites dog story when they um, help out or run ads in favor of a Democrat, as they had with Senator Heidekamp. Uh, now, the, their their applause for her is is uh, very narrow, uh, narrowly focused on free trade. And um, but the, I think one thing I would say about the, the the whole Coke operation is they are they are intellectually honest. And and I, ideologically honest. And um, if you have a Republican candidate and a Republican president and a, a president that does things they like on on tax cuts and things like that, that's absolutely fine. But they will, you know, trade is an important issue to them, and you know they're not going to take a dive. Um, so anyway, I. I it's it's interesting, but I don't think it's I, I don't think it's a trend, and I don't expect to see it happen anywhere else um, this cycle. What do you think's at stake in the last rounds of primaries later this summer? What should we be watching for? Well, I, I I'm just um, I think people tend to um, look at things through straws, and one week Democrats will. Uh, nominate a, a group of, you know, pragmatic, uh, former Iraq or Afghanistan veterans and prosecutors and people say, see, they're, they're nominating a lot of pragmatists. And the next week they may nominate some ideologues that are, uh, shall we say, less than optimal. And I think you just sort of have to stand, I, I would urge people not to look at this week for week because you can, you can come up with some lot of erratic uh, conclusions. Um, I, I'm more. Uh, I, I'm not watching primaries. I, I mean, I have people on our team, our House editor, our, our Senate governor editors, are looking very closely at what's going on. But um, I would much rather sort of look at the the macro scene and then just look at the what what the general election, what the horse race numbers are. And, you know, if you had an equal number of seats up in the Senate, Democrat-Republican, an equal number of, uh, of competitive races, I think Republicans would probably lose a bunch of seats in the Senate. 
But the fact is that uh, there are 10 Democratic Senate seats up in states that that President Trump carried, and there's only one Republican seat up in a state that Hillary Clinton carried. And five of those 10 Democratic seats in Trump states, Trump won by 19 points or more. Um, You know, you you have a very – this is the most lopsided, one-sided map in favor of of a party that we've seen in modern history. So that's what constitutes the wave – I mean, the wall – the Republican seawall that that looks more likely than not to um, uh, hold back uh, what appears to be a fairly strong Democratic sea uh, Democratic tidal wave. Now, is that tidal wave? How much of that tidal wave would you blame uh, on Donald Trump? Seventy thirty. That's pretty. I mean, a lot the, of blame, the, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, we know that midterm elections are referenda on the president's party. And we know what the numbers are. What we, we know what the norm is. The polling supports this following the rule, not the exception, as does election returns since November of 2016. And while I think there are reasons why Republicans went 0 for 5 in statewide elections last year, and I can explain away Alabama and I can explain away New Jersey, but, you know, the three Virginia races statewide, and we're looking at typically the Republicans underperforming by 12 percentage points in congressional special elections, um, so that... The election results are, you know, are consistent with the polling data, which is consistent with what midterm, how midterms normally behave. So um, I, I think, and and it and it's amazing how uh, how consistent it is, even down to um, not just the U.S. House and the Senate, but down into the gubernatorial and state legislative races. Uh, you know, upwards of of ninety percent of uh, of the time, ninety uh, percent of the time, the party in the White since nineteen oh two, the party in the White House uh, lost seats in in, in uh, lost gubernatorial seats twenty six out of twenty nine times, and ninety three percent in the state legislatures twenty seven out of twenty nine, and that's you know with ninety two percent of the House and seventy three percent of the time nineteen out of twenty six of the Senate since we started the direct election of senators in nineteen thirteen. So, um, uh, you know, we know what the pattern is, and the evidence as we see it supports the pattern, not not an exception to the rule like you saw with a, a backlash against uh, Republican impeachment of, of Clinton in 1998 or, or um, 14 months after 9-11 with President Bush and Republicans in 2002. This doesn't look like the exceptions. It looks more like the rule. Charlie, Georgia is another state that Democrats always hope will go blue. Do you think the Democratic candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams, has a chance? Um, a chance, yes, uh, a great chance. I'm a, I'm a little skeptical that uh, Georgia is, a, is somewhat less red than um, some other, you know, than, than some other southern states, but I would. I'm. I'm. I'm a little skeptical about Georgia, um, about Georgia going uh, um, going Democratic. Um, in fact, actually, we've got it rated as solid Republican. Um, so, no, I don't think Georgia is going to go Democratic in the governor's race. No. Now, you did suggest that if 
People want to understand the large demographic shifts that are reshaping America. They should read the recent Pew report on the subject. It describes the divide as not red versus blue, but rural versus urban. What does that mean for national elections going forward and for the vast divide between people in states? Well, it, it has different, I mean, it, it um, um, there is um, that division, that sort of somewhat realignment is taking place, but it's more, um, it tends to be seen reflected more in some areas than others. Uh, for example, the U.S. Senate, where each state has equal representation so that um, uh, states like, uh, you know, the Dakotas and Wyoming and Idaho and, uh, Wyoming, you know, th- th- those states get have disproportionate strength in the Senate, and they're very rural, and they're very Republican, and so that helps Republicans out. Um, and to a lesser degree in the Electoral College, uh, that's the case, but the House is obviously, uh, it, it's more redistricting that affects, uh, that affects that. But, you know, I, I, I hear Republicans, I hear a lot of times Republicans say, well, if you take out New York and California, um, Donald Trump would have won the presidency. Well, okay, fine, but you, you can't take out the two largest states. And what about the advantage, the advantages uh, that Republicans get because of, of of Senate representation and 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 overperforming in the Electoral College because of the Senate? So, but it's absolutely the case, and I think it's people voting values. Um, more than economics. Uh, I was sitting next to a, talking to a beef, uh, cattleman a couple months ago and I asked him, are, are you concerned about tariffs? And he said, yes, I'm very concerned about tariffs. But the very next thing out of his mouth is, but I think that President Trump is doing, uh, what he thinks is in the national interest and I support him 100%. Where he, you know, a lot of people in small town, whites in small town, rural, uh, America, uh, they don't like and they don't trust the coast, the elites, people in urban areas, and they see Donald Trump as President Trump is speaking to them and articulating many of their um, fears, anxieties, passions, um, and um, so that 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 um, he he is unusually strong in that small town rural America, um, and that's where that sort of bedrock Republican area, but. Um, at the same time, they're weakening in suburbs, which is a a much bigger part of the country. Now, on Trump's polling, you write, it shouldn't be a surprise that this most unconventional of presidents might have a non-traditional pattern of job approval ratings. What does that mean? Well, he, uh, President Trump, if he were a stock, he would have a very narrow trading range. That um, you know, just using Gallup numbers, um, that uh, his average of his presidency is thirty nine percent, and he very rarely goes more than three points uh, one way or the other from that thirty nine. Right now, he's at forty two percent in last week's Gallup poll, but it's it's uh, you know sort of thirty five to. 35 to 42, you know, something like that, you tend to see uh, 
see his, uh, his 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 approval rating is very pretty consistent. In a lot of weeks, uh, something good will happen, and he doesn't move up much, or something bad happens, and he doesn't move down much. That um, his he's down, he is at a bedrock of. 39, 40% that just doesn't move much. I think when when he said during the campaign that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his base would stay with him, I think that's absolutely true. But it's also true that there is a pretty adamant opposition to him, um, that for every one person that strongly approves the job president's doing, there's generally 1.5, 1.6, 1.7 people that strongly disapprove. And that is a, a, a very, very high intent, negative intensity there, and one that, that worries Republicans, uh, that should worry Republicans in terms of a midterm election when the turnout is generally a third less than in a presidential year. It seems like okay. Joe Biden is testing a presidential run. How popular is he still, and does that popularity translate to votes? Well, um, Vice President Biden, the numbers are, are, are pretty good. Um, and whether they would translate into votes or not, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know if he, we'll know, uh, know if, if, if he, if he runs. Um, I, I, um, when I look at President Trump's, um, this high disapproval ratings and when I look at his high strongly disapproved ratings, it strikes me as if, as long as Democrats nominate someone that is less polarizing than he is, they probably they probably win. Um, and so, I, and frankly, I think that uh, a Biden would have, uh, even with the age um, issue there, would might well have a better chance of winning a general election than say an Elizabeth Warren. But uh, but um, I, I mean, I think. To me, for Democrats, the more challenging question is this. Where is the center of gravity and where is the passion? Where is the energy in the Democratic Party? Is it left of center where Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton is? Or is it far, far left, like Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders, for example? Um, well, most of the indices we look at, they're, they're suggesting that the center of gravity is over on the far, much farther to the left than uh, Clinton was, Biden was and is. Um, and, and to me, that's a, not a good sign for Democrats. But at the same time, um, you, uh, I wonder... You know, how self-indulgent do Democrats want to be uh, and how badly do they want to beat President Trump? And do they want to do something that feels good or do they want to do something that maximizes their chances? Now, I realize that electability is not one of the strongest factors in people deciding who they're going to support for their president's nomination. But I, but I don't think it's a non-factor either. Um, and, um, I think if Democrats, uh, if they think it's important to win the presidency, uh, I think they, they certainly ought to look at electability, but, um, um, I, I think age is a handicap for the vice president, but at the same time, he's got a whole lot of strengths and, you know, we'll see whether the strengths, uh, outweigh the weaknesses if he decides to run. 33 years after publishing its first issue. The Cook Political Report, founded by Charlie Cook, has become known as the preeminent source of nonpartisan political analysis and forecasting. Al Hunt has referred to Cook as the Picasso of election analysis. 
You can find more of his analysis at cookpolitical.com. Charlie Cook, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. 